Okay, tonight, uh, as the title says, we're going to look at creation-based gospel for the postmodern world. Is it better if I sit down or stand up? You don't mind? You don't care? I'll sit down. Um, so, in, in, in this talk, I thought it was time to go positive. So, um, I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed going... I'm an iconoclast at heart, and the more shocking, the better. Um, so... But we did clear a, a couple of roadblocks, I think, in the last uh, uh, two talks on radical humanism and evangelism, you know, which was really the predestination thing with Calvin and, um, and then original sin. So, but but um, what I want to do tonight is to essentially um, move the dial to... Uh, Addressing the question of in, in, the, in the era we're in, which I'm calling a postmodern era, and I'll talk about that a bit in a moment, uh, what's the most positive and effective way to frame the gospel? Um, as I always say, uh, the gospel's a living thing and every generation has got a responsibility to frame it for its audience. Uh, and um, in framing it, um, it isn't just a... It isn't just a cosmetic repackaging, it's almost like a rediscovery of some perhaps neglected aspect of the gospel for that era that becomes relevant. Because the gospel and God is, is infinite, so there's, there's no way it can be packaged up tightly. Um, now, so um, let's just look at the... Uh, the, postmodern or the postmodern world. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but... Um, Postmodern is almost a uh, a non-definition. It's it's really defining the modern era, which I think it's most useful to think of as beginning after the First World War. Um, and it's it's an, it's the era post-modernity. So what's modernity? Well, the era that's philosophically called. Modernity is the great white hope of probably the Enlightenment that we human beings are finally busted through in science and guys in white coats will give us control over our environment, the great hope of control. Um, control through knowledge, con control through information, and that hope continues to, uh, to drive um, the, the, the Western mind. The fact that it doesn't seem to be working that well um, which I call, oh shit, um, is post-modernity. Like, this was meant to be the most organised, the most prosperous, the best era. Um, and, and what have we done? Two world wars, atomic bombs, um, and, uh, you know, a, a, a litany of social, political uh, problems. Now, it seems we're strangling the planet. There's this enormous irony of... Um, uh, confusion. So that has led to an. Uh, now I said post World War One because it is useful to consider uh, what happened in the First World War. Really, um, I would characterise what happened in the First World War. I mean, as the total loss of faith in authority figures by the common populace. Because, frankly, um, if, if you look at the poetry in 1914, 1915, it was patriotic, you know, nationalistic. And then if you look at the poetry in 1917, 1918, 
of Wilfred Owen, it's gut-wrenching poetry about guys uh, choking on their own vomit in a gas attack. And who did this? The generals, the authority structures. So um, uh, um, it's, it's quite useful to say there was just a seismic loss of faith in central authority post the First World War that's come to frame uh, the Western mind. And um, that challenge obviously didn't just begin then, um, but I think that would make sense to us all. Now, in that, so we're in, we're in an era now defined by that where uh, people are very sceptical of absolute claims of truth and relativism as long, uh, in, in, in the face of such confusion, people retreat to, I'll live my life, you live yours, don't disturb me. Um, and along the way, there has been a parallel um, I suppose, faith or rise in empirical-based reasoning, you know, the, 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 still the hope of logic and proof and, uh, um, uh, and, and demonstrable evidence um, for ultimate truth. Now, in that world, what I'm going to talk about tonight, and, and, and for a lot of Christians this is kind of scary because it means the church is losing power, we're on the edges, um, and... Um, uh, the influence of Christianity in the Judeo-Christian religion is being threatened. Uh, I think one of the exciting things about Miroslav Falp is he said that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Christianity's always done best when it's on the edges. Now, but in that era where um, of scepticism, uh, the manner of discourse that becomes increasingly important is argumentation. Because you use arguments, oh, I'm going to spend the first I quarter the talk explaining the theory of argumentation uh, upon which I built my entire professional life. Argumentation is, is where you have, you want influence, but you have no power. But if I can't boss you around, how do I influence you? The answer is I persuade you. Now that's actually called argument, which was the great theory behind the book of rhetoric by Aristotle. Now, I often say to people that the world now in a postmodern era is a theatre of arguments. It's a battle and a contest of ideas. And um, so it, it's, it's really smart for us to understand a little bit about arguments and, uh, and how to use them. Uh, an argument, when I, when I call something an argument in literary terms, it's a genre. Now, genre is really, really important um, because if I look at any single sentence, how I interpret that sentence will depend upon the genre. Um, there, has, there, you know, there was um, a lot of media coverage in Australia, I think a week back, because you know, some of the, Eddie Maguire and some of the uh, AFL commentators um, talked about a journalist that they were going to hold underwater and... Um, and drown, and drown her. Now, just think of that statement, I'm going to hold you underwater and drown you. Now, if th th their, their excuse was it was comedy. It was, um, uh, you know, it was, an, it was an ironic statement, in which case you can say those sort of things. But if it was said seriously in a cafe and recorded, it would be conspiracy to murder. It's, it's, real, it's a big difference, isn't there? 
So genre really matters. Um, and I've got some genres up here on the board, which is, which is really quite important. Contrast an argument, for instance, with legislation or a procedure or a policy. So procedures and policies are like orders and we comply with them and we read them a certain way. Um, but uh, and they have a strong authority power over an audience. You know, if I've got legislation, binds me. I've got to do it. But legislation doesn't win my heart and it doesn't win my mind. Uh, so it's arguments that do that. They have weak authority and power over the audience. But ironically, it's arguments that change history, not legislation. It's arguments that win hearts and minds. So um, I don't want to go further with this, but just to make the important opening point that an argument is a genre and it's got a particular structure to it. Now, the critical thing about arguments is that um, the goal is persuasion. Now, there's another way of defining persuasion, which is the creation of faith. I mean, you believe arguments. That's what you do with them. They are there specifically to create faith in sceptical people who don't know what they think. Uh, if I'm a uh, lawyer before a jury, they don't know what their verdict is going to be, so I have to create an argument. The argument will create faith in a belief that this is true. So that's, that's, the, that's the job of an argument. Um, the structure of an argument, and this is now really a snapshot of rhetoric, is it's got three parts to it. Um, uh, Aristotle in his rhetoric said to be uh, a person of influence, and you could well understand why in the ancient world this was the core skill of a leader. Um, Rome had a lot of things wrong with it, but its, uh, its theory of the Republic was not one of the things that was wrong with it. It was very good. And in the Republic, in Rome, you could only hold office for one year, maximum. So what that meant was they had a lot of retired uh, ser uh, yeah, civil servants around. And the civil servants were still expected to influence, but they had no power. So how could they influence without power? They had to be persuasive. So that re I'm really a leader. To me, by the way, it is still probably one of the best definitions of leadership that I influence in situations where I have no power. The power of my words creates faith in people to do things. So there's three aspects of it. On the one hand is agency, the speaker. I'm not going to go into this tonight, but in the theory of rhetoric, they said if you want to be persuasive, a lot of it's in you. A lot of it's in you. It's not even in your argument, which is obviously the core of the intellectual part of it. People pick whether you're a fake, whether you're passionate, whether you're empathetic. People do it all. You just look at the political discourse right, on the TV. It's not How many people talk about the health policy, defence policy? They don't know, but they'll... they'll, they'll there's endless diagnosis of the character of Shorten versus Turnbull and, you know, whether they're serious or whether they change their mind. It's character that actually intrigues us. And so that's important, pretty important for us Christians. We have to bring ourselves into arguments and our feelings into arguments. Importantly, the audience. This is a really tricky, tricky point to get. In rhetoric, um, it's the audience that acts, not the speaker. 
And the whole goal of the speaker is to transfer their agency into the audience so the audience will do what the speaker wants. This is a very profound point. So I'm not going to make the decision, the audience is going to make the decision. Now, since I don't control them, the tool to get into their heads so that something works in their heads to transfer what's in my will is an argument. What this means is that arguments, importantly, are very flexible and adaptive depending on the audience. I change. And once you get the uh, theory of rhetoric in your mind, you will see it all through the Bible. I mean, the theory of rhetoric was definitely picked up by the Judeo-Christian church. Uh, the early church fathers were deeply trained in it, and Paul was a brilliant rhetorician. So when Paul said, I'm a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greeks, it's straight rhetoric. And you can't pick a Paul sermon. I'm at the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, talks I might give when I get a chance to pursue this, to continue to pursue this topic is to look at the 10 or so sermons in the Acts of the Apostles and compare them because that, that's our data as to how they frame the gospel. Actually, very, very interesting. Very interesting. But one thing I can tell you straight away, they're not the same. They're just not, there's not a template, depends on the audience. These guys were very astute, at so they would begin in a way that appealed to the audience. Um, now, uh, the structure of an argument is what I'm going to give you now. And this, is, this, this part is something that, that we've invented, in, uh, that I invented, and, and we use in our firm all the time. This is very, very, very powerful. I mean, we've just run a workshop uh, with Telstra, big complex workshop, um, lots of you know, people there who haven't worked together before. People come out saying, this was the best day of my working career. The arguments really get into people's hearts and minds. They're very transformative. They're very, very, very powerful. So I really... Um, and, and really passionate about getting inside the structure of the argument. And this one is really um, extremely, um, extremely persuasive. So arguments begin with what we call the A space, and this is really important. They begin with the problem, not the solution. That's a, a compelling argument. Most people begin with the solution. That statement you can see on the board is incredibly powerful. People will divide over solutions, but they unite over problems. Straight away, you start to now measure this against the gospel, you can see why if we kind of up for a lot of evangelical declaration doesn't work, I'm giving you a big solution to a problem you don't believe you've got. So you've got to find the problem space. Now, if that's all you do, it's not very persuasive because every great argument's got to have hope in it. It's got to have a sense that I believe I can, we can get somewhere. It's got to have some kind of vision in it that the world can be better, that we can do stuff. And... It's generally at the edges of my imagination. It's a world of possibility, but it's got to be desirable to me. Only then do you begin to go into what we might call a solution. You've got to, having set, posed a problem, which is how do we move from A to B, you then get into what we call C, which is there's a hypothesis as to the levers we're going to pull. What, uh, what bridge can we get to solve this dilemma? And then uh, all arguments need closure. That we, we, there's some kind of call to arms, there's some kind of so what, otherwise the thing doesn't close. And every argument's got to have a so what to it. Otherwise people feel, it's, they feel left up hanging in the air. So A, B, C, D is the structure. Um, now that's, I've just given you kind of five minutes of 
the intellectual property that I've made millions of dollars out of. It's, it's, it's just, it's the only thing that, oh, it's one of the few things I can be proud of, making a lot of money out of four letters of the alphabet. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so what? <laughs> so let's, let's get a bit deeper into it now and now bring the gospel. So I've given you the framework. Is that okay, roughly where we are and see the importance of this? So, so now we're going to move to um, uh, uh, some of the more sophisticated uh, understanding of the structure. Firstly, the, this is the main thing I'm going to talk about in terms of advice as to how... How we structure the gospel of the postmodern era. Arguments begin with a problem, um, and so that's really important. So therefore, I've got to have a relatively sophisticated sense of problems. You know, how many people here of you have thought over classes of problems? Is any anyone here? Some of you would have, but theories of classes of problems. I mean, problem solving is really interesting to human beings. Everyone talks about it. It's, like, it's, think, it's sometimes called critical thinking skills. People are really interested in it. Um, but if you're going to begin with, the, with problems, you've got to have a, 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 um, uh, I suppose, taxonomy of problems or theory of problems. I'm going to give you a simple but very, very powerful theory of problems. Not the only one I can give you, but it's really powerful. The most common use of problem is as in it, uh, something's broken and we need to fix it. Like the car won't start. Right? That's, most people think of a problem as a deviation from the norm that I don't like. Right? And there's a kind of a feeling, isn't there, that I shouldn't have them. A problem-free life is fantastic. And if we could just solve all the problems, that would be great. Is that a fair enough characterisation of what's the common meaning of the word problem? Radio. Um, now, frankly, that's boring. I mean, one of the greatest articles I've ever read was as a very young man, which has influenced me ever since, is called The Poverty of Problem Solving. The, the author, if you want to Google it, Sir Geoffrey Vickers, uh, simply said it's, you require nothing more than mere basic intellectual competence to solve a problem. It's not interesting in the slightest. Um, he said problem finding was much more interesting, which in a way is what we're doing at the moment. Now, so let's now take that concept into the gospel. And what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to use the ABCD structure. And I've done this once before. I'm repeating a talk I gave a couple of years ago, but I think it's uh, timely to do it again. And it's pretty important. Essentially, if we say sin is the problem, if we say that, then this is the argument we will build. And, and you can't, from the opening gambit, once you've stated that, you're in a box. You can't get out of it. You've got to understand this. You cannot break out of that box. So if you say sin is the problem, that's the A space. You know, you're going to hell. Uh, where would you spend eternity? Um, you're a sinner. If you say that, then that will shoot you straight through to the, you're going to heaven. That's the hope. That's the corollary of that that's offered. Um, your sins are forgiven, you go to heaven. So that tends to be the resident promise of the kind of four spiritual laws type evangelical gospel. Um, what's the solution? Well, it's Christ on the cross. Forgiveness of sins. If sin's the problem, forgiveness of sins, the cross uh, has got to be the solution. Um, and he died on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. 
And so what? Well, it's conversion, very much, right? Um, and repent and be forgiven. Um, if I've named sin as the problem, then sanctification as de-sinning will tend to be the route I'm going to go. And evangelism, which is get people to do the same as what I've just done. So there's a logic that leads you between the A to structure your argument that way once you say sin is the problem. Does that make sense to everyone? Now, there's issues with this, rightio, and the issues are, I mean, there are a few of them, but I'm looking at it for the moment just from the viewpoint of persuasion, like how persuasive is this to people? Um, and I'm going to give a few shortfalls of this. The first shortfalls is that most of our audience today just simply don't believe that that's the problem. They're just not going around asking how their sins are going to be forgiven. Now, that might not have been the case in 1920 or in 1870. I'm not saying that. But today, it is not the case that people take as... So I'm starting the argument and I'm lost. Does that make sense? I, I'm just... I've got to... I, I, we're not on common ground. And furthermore, they'll flick back to me straight away. What about, what about all the pedophilia uh, going on in, in the church? You know, um, and so it's a, it, it becomes contentious. There's a second problem, which I don't know if you ever thought about this, but actually you do not require God anywhere in the definition of that problem. You just, you're into morality and ethics, and God's actually not part of it. He's actually not necessary to define sin. I mean, a lot of people can have a debate over what's right, what's wrong, but they don't bring God into it. So what that means is we've framed the argument as morality, not theology. We didn't mean to do it, but that's what's happened. The third thing, this is, a bit of a, this is a bit of a tricky one, but I just want to throw it in because it's really important. It actually minimises the incarnation, completely minimises it as not, little more than a temporary disguise to forgive our sins. I have characterised that elsewhere as what I call the bungee jump model of salvation, which is, you know, God's up in heaven doing whatever he's doing, all the interesting stuff. He's got this kind of minor interest in the earth and sees we're in problem, sends his son, so Jesus Christ comes down, solves the problem, goes back up to heaven, and the Godhead continue doing what they were always doing. It's the kind of rescue model. Um, so he's saviour, but he's not lord, and those words are pretty different. Uh, the fourth is re very significant. I think it's a real issue with the way, the kind of brand we've given the gospel, which is, I've got, frankly, a negative anthropology. The majority of the ways I diagnose any situation is through the filter of sin. And that's a pretty negative anthropology. Um, so that, that negative anthropology left me, I'm not saying any of this is explicit, but it's deeply under the surface. As a young 18-year-old, finding the gospel boring. If you convert at five like I was and you're reasonably literate by the age of 17, that ABCD around sin, it doesn't take long to get your mind around that. And it's frankly, okay, we're sinners. Well, I was much more interested in the psychology and reading T.S. Eliot's poetry or um, yeah, the, deep, the deep kind of um, human grappling with shadows and uncertainty and the mess of life, that, that I found that intriguing. And, and how sin fit in that, I wasn't sure. So sin increasingly became like a little box over there that was a theology box. It wasn't animating me. And um, 
this is, the, this is the, probably the important one. It begs all the big questions people are asking. It doesn't raise them. So, they make sense. I'm not trying to be exclusive, but I mean, just, I'm saying this is not a, a today a very good beginning to the gospel. Um, now, if you want to begin, in, 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 here, here's a clue. Um, to begin our, the argument of the gospel in a postmodern era, we're still dealing with human beings. And one of the critical issues is we need to get arguments that go right back to first principles. So bear that in mind. And now I'm going to go, so that's a critique. Let's go now to positive. So what do we do differently? Well, here's a clue. Great arguments don't actually state a problem. They reframe it. That's what every great arguer does. They reframe the problem. Um, which leads like, if Jesus is the answer, so what's the problem? What's the problem Jesus solved? Now, that's actually a, not a trivial question. That's actually, I, I like that much better because if Jesus is the answer, what exactly is the problem? Uh, is, is, um, is where a lot of my thinking today has come from. So you've, the, 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 the clue in a great argument is find some common ground that people will share and then, then lift and reframe and stretch. So let's take that and let's go back to where I talked about types of problems. Now, I, I, I intimated there's two types of problems. Uh, what's the second type? Because this is the real clue. This is really important. There's an entirely other class of problem that people call a design problem. A design problem. And I could be in a fantastic situation but have a design. What's a design problem? It's frustrated purpose. It's a sense we could be bigger and better. So let me give you a specific example of uh, where this was at work with a client recently. So we had a very major overseas client. Their, their A, their situation was that they had, in the last five years, gone from being a loss-making firm to a billion dollars profit. How's that a problem? That actually is not a problem. So they could just sit back and say, that's fine. And actually, that's the question we asked them. What we said is, do you have a design problem? Would you like to be any better or not? Is this as good as it gets? That's a design problem. So design problems are really fascinated by limits and constraints to potential. Um, a lot of not-for-profit you know, uh, and Christian organisations have a design problem, like perhaps World Vision has. Perhaps I mean, I don't know if it does, but I mean, people from those organisations, I think, have talked to me from time to time, and they're, have we lost our identity? Are we still true to who we are or what? Um, and the question is not how do I solve the problem, it's how do I transform the situation. Does that make sense? So design problems, is a, I'm going to say clearly, is a much better way to begin the argument to everybody. Have we got, as human beings, do we have a design problem? So let me give you an example now of probably the greatest reframing of a problem in the last 200 years. Probably. Recognise him? Might not recognise what's on the right. That's Gettysburg. And you can go there today and it is a beautiful, peaceful, idyllic, little secluded village. 
where in the Battle of Gettysburg, in three days, more Americans died than died in the entire Vietnam War. It was a bloodbath of such proportions, you can actually stand in this beautiful little creek that they call, it's, they called uh, Red Creek because it literally ran red with blood. Uh, Lincoln's job as the victor, the winner, was to commemorate, the Gettysburg Address was the commemoration of the cemetery, to bury everybody. Uh, uh, the, the, the actual battle happened um, in autumn, so for two or three months they had no problem. All the corpses were frozen, but come spring, big, big problem, and so they had to bury everybody. You go around, and, and they buried them in common graves. It's just, it's, it's an eerie... If you ever get the chance to go to Gettysburg, go there. Um, he had to give the address. Now, think of his situation. His audience are the vanquished and the victors. The North and the South. So, what's he going to say that's going to persuade them all that we're together? That's the question. He gave the answer in, as you might well know, two and a half minutes. It's called the Gettysburg Address. It's 273 words long. And they're frequently called the words that made America. Everybody there thought the problem was slavery. The problem was the war. The problem was North versus South. That, 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 and those were, you know, poignant, uh, heart-rending problems. That's what everybody expected him to say. Problem solving. What did he say? These are the opening words. Now you've got to remember the date. I'll give, I think it was 1864-ish. Pretty right. That's all you need to know. And look at these opening two sentences, probably among the greatest two sentences ever crafted in a political speech. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Four score and seven is 87. 87. What happened 87 years before in America? The Declaration of Independence, the founding of America in Philadelphia by the 13 states against England. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Do you see what he's done? He's gone back to the original purpose. And the purpose was what? Well, it was the future of democracy. What he means by, we are here on a big test. Now, think You've got to put yourself back in the middle of the 19th century. The French attempt at democracy had spectacularly failed in chaos. Nobody believed you could actually have a stable country built on a democratic system. We are here on a great test of the system of democracy. That's where we are, and that's what we're testing. It was an astonishing reframing of the problem. And it's a design problem, isn't it? Because... There was a purpose in this country which was 
We will found a nation on liberty, dedicated, all people are created equal. Now we're in a test to see whether that can happen or not. Fantastic stuff. But can you see what he's done? Now, that's just what we've got to do with the gospel. What are you actually, one way of reframing a problem to get back to purpose is go back to the origins. That's what he did. I'm going right, right back, back further than you expected me to go. Not two years, three years, or five years, but 87. So, for us, that means this is how I would be reframing the gospel um, as a bigger story for the postmodern world. That the, the, the A is a situation, um, and the situation is creation. It's th th and, and the situation is that in creation, we're in this miracle, this mystery that's full of promise, but there's a huge question over whether it means anything. Are we in a joke or are we in a serious narrative? And what's the role of human beings in this place? Because death seems to mock any sense that we've got significance and meaning. And, and that challenge can be framed in different levels. It can be framed uh, personally, cosmically, socially. It can be framed on all of those different levels. And if we went even further, I would reframe it to say that uh, it isn't even our problem, it's God's problem. That God's had a purpose that's been frustrated and challenged. So that's how I would be reframing the A for rather than sin is around creation. Let me pause there. It's getting a little bit warm. Pete, I forgot to turn the air conditioning on. If you hold that, see that green light there? Uh, now down below the switch, below there. Yeah, just, you know, got, it might hold on for a couple of seconds and see if it comes on. You're cold, eh? Oh, it might come on in a couple of minutes. Is anyone hot or are we all right? Might be just me talking. Okay, we're, we're, it's like if people are fine, we're fine. Okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Um, so, that, uh, that's how, uh, once you, if, if you start the problem and the debate in creation, everything changes because then if you go to your hope, your hope is a new creation. Straight away, that's the corollary. That, that's, what you, that, that's what people are expecting us to be talking about. Not heaven, but some kind of claiming of meaning for the entire cosmos. And that's the hope we can, we, we can actually declare that fundamentally we, we are people who believe that meaning will define the cosmos. Phenomenal meaning. And that life will dominate the cosmos. Life will pervade the cosmos, eternal life forever, and death as a system will be obliterated. And, and the argument can be made at a personal level, which is how I, I used to do, was really taught to do evangelism, but can equally be for society and can equally be for the whole of nature. So does that, does that ring bells for people that by that reframing of the argument we begin to stretch things? 
I mean, I think we all know you could say a great deal under those two columns, but once you've done that, you've done what Lincoln did at Gettysburg, you've stretched, and you're now back with a design problem. Not, I'm, not with the, I'm not even at the problem of it. It's more, does the place have a design or not? Have we lost the design? Think of Lincoln. Lincoln went back to say, our forefathers conceived, and it was a big conceiving. It was all men are created equal. Incredibly noble. Why don't we have just virtually the same? It wasn't our forefathers who conceived the cosmos, but we believe God conceived the cosmos with a massive meaning and a massive purpose. And really, it's him who's got the problem because it's his purpose that's been frustrated. It's not like he's got no problems and he, this is a sideshow of rescuing me. No, no, his purposes have got stumbled. They've got thwarted. And these purposes are not minor to him. They're relentless and central. So really, the problem in the A, if I really talk about it, is God's not mine, which is exactly what Athanasius does in his book on the Incarnation. And the bigger I paint the A, the bigger that B becomes, because it's a cosmic picture of redemption. Now, once I've got a big A and a big B, I also need a bigger hypothesis. So you'll find that this will have to lift the image of Christ. Um, as having secured whatever happened on the cross and the resurrection, which will have to bring the resurrection into it, somehow or other, this enormous transaction of Christ, this incarnation of Christ, secured one back meaning for all humanity. All that was mocking us, like death, he obliterated, and he's established a template for what it is to be truly human, what it is to be truly peaceful in the cosmos, what it is for matter to be sustainable. And he smashed death in resurrection. That's the story in the sea. Interestingly, you then go to, well, so what do I do with that? And I think you get much, much more than just conversion. I actually think the declaration is he is Lord and he's king. And you do what you do with a king. You obey them. You get with the program. You participate. Um, and you participate now in the coming reality and the coming rule. Now, what I like about that D is actually it keeps going all through life. It's a trajectory of increasing um, commitment to the king, increasing understanding of the king, uh, rather than a one-off conversion. So under, that's how I'd be reframing the gospel around creation. That's really the highlight of the talk tonight. Um, Yeah, so uh, Brian asks, what happens if the audience challenges you straight up about A? Now, here's the issue that, and I'll get to this in a moment, like arguments are not all one. That's the whole point. Earlier on, earlier on in, in the talk, I actually think Jesus declared that the argument would be the modus operandi of his kingdom in the parable of the sower, right? Not the sword. I'm not going to coerce. This is like so counterintuitive. The era will be the era of persuasion. The whole point about the parable of Sarah is you're not going to, it's not going to work. Don't go out there thinking every person you talk to is going to believe. They didn't believe me. They, like, the incredible thing about the Gospels is that he had lots of arguments and he lost them and he didn't zap them. All right? He lost the argument. And we go, that's the way we're going to go. So I think the parable of Sarah is fantastic. It's kind of like, Play the numbers game. 
<laughs> go for the go for the quarter, and uh, accept the fact that you know. Look, as in any argument, I might or might not persuade you, but I'm going to use all all of my tools to do my best. But then it's up to you. That's that's that'd be my answer, I think. And then the agility with which I might. The other thing I'd want to say is this: um, I believe that arguments are divine. I really believe that. Like language is divine. One of my core beliefs, it is the most divine aspect of, the human, of being a human being. And therefore, if I start talking about language and discourse and like arguments, I'm on holy ground here. And I think God is the God of arguments because this image of the word is all throughout. And the image is the word's living. It's like a seed that grows. So I reckon we can have... I have seen the extraordinary power of arguments to persuade the sceptical, but if it's God and the spirit involved, I think it all gets tripled. So people can look at you and say, it's a load of crap and I don't believe it. And there's part of me that's saying, well, you just don't quite know, do you? Because I've spoken to lots of people like you who, like three days later, fell on their knees and said, uh, as one of my wonderful friends said, I think I've been wrong about Jesus. You know, so I think we can uh, expect that. So let me pause there and just say this template, um, as simple as it is, uh, is um, something that under each of these areas um, has got a, a, like a, a canyon of, of meaning. And I'm just going to go into a little bit of it to finish the talk off. Um, first thing I'm going to say is this is exactly what God did with Moses. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you. This is exactly the great argument of Scripture. I don't have time to do it now, but if you listen to a talk I gave a couple of years ago on Moses, I, I put the whole of the Pentateuch through the ABCD model. What happened was, say, roughly 1400 BC, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they were looking forward to create a new society uh, that was a, uh, unique on the planet, um, we know that that society was even more than that, the vehicle for the birth of the Son of God. We know that. That was a hugely important enterprise. But put yourself in the, in, in the shoes of the people. For 400 years, they'd been slaves in a country that believed everybody was a slave. Uh, that was their worldview. I don't think they had any other worldview in their mind than all human beings are slaves. That's what Ian Proven and John Walton would say. So what story did God give to Moses? Well, he gave him Genesis. Genesis was written by Moses. So in that context, he went back to the beginning. Even, even it's, it's, it's a bigger rhetorical shift than Lincoln. Lincoln only went back 87 years. Moses went back to the beginning of the cosmos and said, well, why did the cosmos begin? And guess what? All people were made, all of you were made in the image of God. Stunning statement. Absolutely stunning. Genesis 1, 27, into Egypt of the 15th, 14th century is like an innovation that's unthinkable. Nobody had ever conceived that before. But what do you say to a nation of slaves? You're not slaves, you're made in the image of God. So there's a phenomenal way that, so if you want the, uh, this is the, uh, I like simplifying things. Uh, these are the five first books of the Bible in the ABCD model. 
So the situation, we're leaving Egypt, um, and he takes them back to the beginning of the universe and creation um, and establishes the role of human beings in the image of God. Their hope, their vision was a new land flowing with milk and honey, a new society that we based on God's presence, God's favour. He was fantastic at painting that vision. Brian, he, he didn't persuade everybody, as we know. We know there's a lot of problems along the way with people who frankly didn't believe his arguments. Um, uh, the, the intervention, this is very, the arm of the Lord intervened. There was a big C, and there is in life that it isn't just, you know, God intervenes, in this particular case, the Red Sea, the miracles, uh, to bust through with them. Um, and uh, so the so what to them was the Ten Commandments, let's follow him and believe him. So that's the structure of, I, I might be sort of pushing it a little bit, but that's how I see the structure of uh, Moses' argument to the people of Israel. But um, the point remains that he created, just like Abraham, the way, what he did as a phenomenal leader was he just gave them a design problem and reframed entirely what it was to be a Jew, a human being, um, as the basis for his move forward. Do you like that? Cool. <laughs> so let's just uh, finish off with a few so what's about that. Um, I, I haven't had time to kind of, or I probably never will, but to diagnose this idea we all have, we're so boxed into with the four spiritual laws and the evangelical gospel that you've got to begin with sin. Right, that, tell them they're sinners. It's really good to just use the data of the Bible. So well, how many people in the Bible did that? Well, why don't we start with Jesus? Now, John's a really good book. John's a, a book of conversations. They're just, just understand, John's primarily a book of conversations. And I don't know if you've ever studied it like that, but I have. And they all follow a very similar structure, which I can't do now, but just phenomenally interesting. So he's having a conversation. And they're all situational. Woman at the well of Samaria, Nicodemus, uh, his disciples, the Pharisees. So interesting question. Does he begin any of the conversations telling people they're sinners? And they need to be forgiven. I'll just throw it to you. Read it yourself. <laughs> I'm yet to find one. Um, the, and so here are better ways that I think, I think are really powerful. Number one, the light-darkness framework. Um, by the way, let me just make it really plain. Of course sin is real, and I'm not saying you don't open a conversation with that at times, but I'm saying there are other frameworks, and this is a really big one which is we're in the, and this is what Ian Province said, and I love it, we're in the middle of a story. But we have, we're, it's muddled and it's messed up. I don't know the beginning and I don't know the end. We human beings are in the middle of a story. Does it have any meaning? Nice alliteration. Middle of the story, it's muddled, does it have meaning? That, that, like everybody is in that situation. And this matters to God. This is not a sin issue, it's am I... It's an understanding issue. Sorry, I forgot to put the, um, put the thing on. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't have time to get into it. Knowledge is not an artifact. It is deep in the faculties of only God knows and human beings because knowledge requires consciousness. Knowledge is not some objectified uh, statement of a fact. 
Knowledge is an apprehension of a reality in which I engage. Only God does that. Only God knows things. And us, because we're made in his image. So for me to open up questions of do you know, do you want to understand, don't think I'm just pandering to someone's ego. God wants us to know. He wants us to understand. So these deep questions of why are we here and what's the story? And I'm framing it as a light and darkness question. The second one is just as powerful, and that's a life and death frame. The big issue is, now by death, as I've said before, I don't mean an event, I mean a system of death, decay and corruption and constraints and circumspection. And the whole point is, as Hamlet so brilliantly portrays, death seems to mock any sense of meaning. You know, this is one of the great themes of Shakespeare's plays and the Renaissance generally. King's Fall. Uh, By the way, and and this is a real issue for people. To me, this is common ground. What are we going to do with it? It's existential. You know, what are we going to do with it? Now, very importantly, to win this debate, this is where when you get into the structure of these problems, you've got to have some big stuff to say. The big stuff here, and I don't have time to explore this as much as I'd like, if you believe in the immortality of the soul as a given, it mutes the entire life-death argument. And most people believe that we Christians, or the, the defining thing we believe in is life after death immortally. If you believe that, then, then in fact you've, you can't have the life-death framework going. So just think about that a little bit. Because Jesus did not gain immortality. If we think that the soul is immortal as just a characteristic of the soul, then Jesus didn't win it. The doctrine of the immortality of the soul, there's a 5% chance that the New Testament writers believed it. There's a 100% chance that Plato believed it. So this is where when you get into an argument, to be agile, you've actually got to think on your feet a little bit and have a deeper doctrine. The more agile and adaptable your arguments, the deeper your doctrines have got to be. The next one is a really interesting one. I think it's high time, it's absolutely within the, uh, the framework of the, of, the, of the scriptures to introduce the social issue. We are not governing the world particularly well. Could be families, could be soccer clubs, could be countries, could be Brexit, right? We just don't seem to do a particularly good job at the socio-political level. As Yates said, the centre cannot hold. All anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's something that should be an A space for us because it's centrally interesting to the writers of the Bible. Um, What is the role and the ability of us human beings to control events? I mean, it is scary. This is a scary place because we are really losing control. Again, you know, the, the, the desire for control is a um, fine thing. And then the final one of human insignificance, which I won't go on to. Um, obviously, those frameworks are very biblical. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He began the conversation about light and darkness, life and death. I'm the bread of life. Um, whoever follows me won't see death. Um, whoever follows me won't walk in darkness. You'll have understanding. You'll, you'll get the meaning thing. Um, and the control governance one is another very big one, um, which the emphasis on sin t- don't, uh, tends to cloud us to. I, I really like the Daniel 
vision of huge beasts governing vast social systems. It's, uh, it's the only way I can explain horrible things like Pol Pot, Nazism, you know, it's it, it just bigger than a group of people deciding to do something is, is what I mean. Like there's just something bigger going on behind it. So um, those, uh, th th that's, that's a way of uh, framing um, the pro different ways of framing the problem that can lead us into a creation um, story of the gospel. And the final thing I'm going to do, just to stretch your minds a little bit, just because I said once you get back into the creation space, it's a big space, and I'll stop on the next slide and then we can have some questions, is uh, it's really interesting to take problems back before Genesis 3. Now, once you start having talk about creation, you'll get there. So what happens is, I think this is how we mostly think about it. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, the fall, problems start. Genesis 4 to 11, unravelling, gets worse, sin all over the world. Eventually, there's Christ on the cross and salvation and there's a restoration. Now, within that framework... The kind of problems of death, the pro a lot of the problems, even the bigger problems I'm talking about, came from the fall. However, I've implied that I, when I said God has bigger problems, um, yes, they're the fall, but I think there are even bigger problems than that, which go back into, and I'm not alone in this speculation. This is the kind of speculation that, for instance, uh, really dominated Athanasius's mind on his book on the Incarnation. Um, sorry. Um, are there design problems in the very act of creation that, are, that were not resolved? In other words, is Genesis 1 and 2 give me a world with potential but not realised potential? Did Adam have eternal life? Or not. Now, these are all speculations, but I'm saying they're extremely healthy ones because now I'm back into the purpose of God in creating anything. See, I think there's an implicit anomaly. There are implicit design problems involved in creation. Essentially, how can the eternal inhabit the temporal and spatial? Take change. Take change. How can change be good? Like some people like Randy, I think his name is Randy Alcon, wrote a, quite a good book in many ways on heaven. He said, well, what age will we be in heaven? He said, we'll be frozen at 34. That's the perfect age. But he's got a model of no change because he can't get, the minute I introduce change, you see what I mean? There's going to be ups and downs and how could that happen in an eternal way when it's all good? I mean, this is, I don't know the answer to that, but there's really interesting questions. So, but there is a macro question of could God's, phenomenal life and power ever be expressed uninhibited in a created order. That's a design problem. It's not a sin problem. And the speculation of people like Irenaeus was perhaps they weren't all solved. Perhaps Genesis 1 and 2 was creation ready to go somewhere, ready to make decisions, but not by any means fulfilled. Now, in the previous model, all that happens at, at the cross is we get back to Adam 
pre in Genesis 2. Does that make sense? And I know that Irenaeus talked about this a lot. I was trying to find the quotes tonight, but I just couldn't. So is all that Jesus accomplished, the second Adam, that I go back to being the first Adam? That's one of their questions. Clearly, in this model, the answer is no. But the bigger questions that I've been posing, Jesus answered those as well. The unresolved questions in the design of the universe and could ever eternal power and life inhabit flesh have been answered in Jesus. Could ever eternity harmonise with time? Could ever we have change which God inhabits? Etc. Etc. You know, they're, you know, they're questions we could all speculate about. The point is, they said Jesus answered those. Now, the language of Paul, in particular, but John invites that. There's one big word he uses, which um, haunted the first and second century fathers, and in particular Irenaeus. It's called recapitulation. You're very familiar with that or not? That word dominated Irenaeus's mind. Jesus did not just redeem us, he recapitulated us. What on earth does he mean? I like it when I get something I don't understand. You know, it's so easy to understand most biblical teaching. It's so boring. But when someone says something like that, what's he talking about? Well, I just, I, I just, I don't think he quite knew, by the way. But I'll tell you where he got the word from. Recapitulation. Uh, the word he got it from could be very, could be summarised as a summary, a summing up. It could be summarised as a synthesis. He got it from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In all wisdom and insight, God has finally made known to us the mystery of his will. That in the fullness of times, he would gather together in one, recapitulate, all things in heaven, all things in earth, in Christ. That's, where, that's the verb. Gather together in one. Recapitulate. Somehow or other, Christ is going to suck up, cohere, recapitulate, capture the promise of every atom in the universe, every cosmic particle, every human being who ever lived, and that's what, they call, that's what Irenaeus said, he, he, he's, he, Christ has fulfilled, he's just forgiven our sins and solved the Genesis 3 problem, he's finally fulfilled the Genesis 1 and 2 problems. So therefore, you have a tremendous sense that Christ fulfills the potential and purpose of all creation in ways that we can only guess at. So you can see how once you stretch the A back, further and further and further, it becomes more interesting to you, the B becomes more exciting, and the C becomes more powerful. And the D is much more fun. Lots more fun. With that, I will stop. So we'll uh, stop the official talk. And um, my wife's here today. Thank you for coming, my dear. She's, she just stayed awake and uh, she told me you talk too long. Prod you. <laughs> <laughs>
I got I got other stuff too here, which I, I just kept going and going on this, um, which is cool. I, I'll just let some of you know because I'll stick up on the website if you want to go further. I, I I I won't. There are three types of argument: past, present, and future. Forensic, epideictic, and deliberative. And I got this cool model of therefore nine ways to start the gospel argument, um, which would be uh, for forensic, epideictic, and future against the cosmos, the society, and the individual. It all actually works, um, but that's the way my... I, I won't go there because it's... <laughs> we, can, we can talk about it afterwards so not everybody has to suffer. So anyway, uh, some questions. Yeah, discussion, not, not just tonight, but some of the other talks on predestination. That, yeah. Influenza. I like it too. I think it's fantastic, actually. Um, I haven't heard him say that, but I love the idea. I mean, I, apart from saying, I, I, for, just for the tape, um, Brian's commented on, um, mentioned Tom Wright's comment that the incarnation was risky business because God was putting all the hopes of heaven and earth in such a fragile, fragile uh, carriage, uh, a baby. I mean, anything could have happened. And um, I just like, there's a sign, a, a song, what the, the hopes and fears of all the years I met in you tonight, you know. I mean, that's just so true. Uh, uh, yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? And yet, that's so risky, yeah. Nice to think of a risky God. And you can go back to the risks of creation then, like creation was such a risky business, you know. Straight away, you've, you've got a more interesting conversation for people like our God is in, in a huge he's the biggest risk taker of all time if you, if you start a conversation like that people would say well I haven't heard this before what do you mean you know and th then you get a conversation going yeah. uh, just on there by the way Tom Wright's writing a book on good direction out in October oh cool N.T. Wright or Tom Wright you get two different names <laughs> we all agree the church is not growing it's irrelevant Talk about sin to people that just don't want to know, that they yeah, believe yeah. in it, all those things we know. We go to church on Sunday, 80%, 90% will talk about redemption theology, mm. from the Reformation and from the Catholic tradition. The creation theology hasn't really made an impact at all on our culture. Mm -hmm. You're a teacher of Barca. Mm -hmm. And I've always said, what's happening? These kids are going to church school, they're Anglican, no doubt, uniting churches, and only about 10% will come out as followers of, the, of mm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. What's going wrong with that? Because they're teaching about sin and judgment mm -hmm. and hell. Mm. 
So when will the new reformation take place? I can't answer that question. <laughs> I ask myself, I mean, I guess what, what I think is that um, we're each in our small corner, we do what we can. I, I personally don't know whether or not the creation gospel would kind of assert itself and get more of a Guernsey than it's got at the moment and grow. I, I do think it's growing, to be honest with you, more than uh, it was 10 years ago and people like Tom Wright and others are popularising it. And um, But uh, I certainly uh, would love... Uh, for there to be a more, you know, institutional, systematic change. I, I put a lot of eggs always in my life in the basket of teaching and education. I think that's an enormously important thing because if you had, at an, say, an, you know, a, a major, major Bible colleges in, in Australia, people essentially articulating their versions of a creation gospel... No, no, they are. But if, if you did, its effect would be very pervasive. So it's, it, it, you know, in terms of affecting the, the institutions, I guess it's hoping that the teachers can change. I, apart from sharing your pain, I can't say much. Yeah? Um, I have a more kind of fundamental question. Oh, more fundamental. I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> if we're more fundamental than the origin of the universe, keep... <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, right. But I'm just wondering, when we're talking about reframing... Yes. Okay, great question. The answer is simple. Yes, I agree. It is. Um, but to amplify it a little bit, so yes, to, to I mean, I'll repeat it in case we keep the questions for the tapes. The question is, is the framing of the gospel uh, from a problem space of sin a problem of communication or are we actually saying it's deeper than that, that's actually a problem of understanding? And if it is, how do we know that the creation gospel's kind of right versus this kind of sin-based one? So first part of the question, absolutely, it's a matter of understanding. Um, and, and, and when I, I just let a little comment slip at the beginning, which was, I think what tends to happen, if you're in, in a debate, you're against an audience that you've never, let's imagine, for instance, you went to uh, Erie and Gyre and had to talk to cannibals, or yeah, you, you, would, you would find that in order to communicate, you would have to dig deeper into what you believed. You'd probably have to discover new bits of it, if that makes sense. I think generationally that happens, and I think in the, you know there's been kind of neglected bits of the gospel that pay in the Reformation were, were recovered, or uh, and so on. But that having been said, I think it's a major uh, the 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 issue of uh, the issue of persuasion. Uh, even the theory of rhetoric had two halves to it, just to help you. The first half in rhetoric was invention or discovery of the arguments, and the second half was communicating it. 
like you know, good elocution and packaging and so on. So they began with how you thought. Uh, um, how do we know we're right? Well, uh, I'm kind of comforted in life that that's actually the wrong question because it's God who's right. I'm just stumbling after grace, so I just keep trying. Um, pretty, uh, pretty confident that the creation gospel is far more biblical. I mean, I've steeped my life in studying the scriptures. And I think we're so often so close to it that we just don't read it properly. I mean, I asked that question. You know, one of the tasks I'm going to do is take that four spiritual laws, that A, B, C, D and sin, and take the 10. Uh, uh, we've got ten, about 10 sermons in the Acts of the Apostles. So that's the data we got. I mean, there's summaries of 10 evangelical sermons. And you try and find that model in it. I'll tell you now, you won't. Uh, try John's Gospel. I, I threw it out. We've got all these conversations. Did Jesus start any of them with you're a sinner? And did he introduce the notion of the forgiveness? The notion of the forgiveness of sins is almost entirely absent from the entirety of John's Gospel. John's Gospel is a life and death gospel. Now, it's not that forgiveness of sins shouldn't be there, but what was John's audience? Well, John wrote 90 AD and he's writing to the entire Mediterranean world. So it was a bigger picture. So, but I think the... The biggest framing of the gospel is back in this creation bit. If you, if you wanted to go further, so if you went inside the Bible and said, well, because the Bible's a living book, it was written over 2,000 years. So you could say, I could jump in and to say the New Testament writers and say, what bits of the Old Testament did they pull out? I could jump into Isaiah and say, oh, take the Psalms, jump into the Psalms and say, because we know the Psalms were written, say, eight, you know, like about 500 years after the Pentateuch. Which bits of Moses' writing did they pull out? So, we, so that, that, to me, that's uh, open and shut case if I believe the Bible's God's word. And the answer is, I mean, try and find, if you said, where in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Psalms, you know, is the fall referred to? It's not. But the creation, and it, it's there so much that for years, personally speaking, blinded by the sin gospel, I didn't see it. It was only about a year ago that I realised Psalm 100, I think it's 104, it's a very long one, is a complete ex, uh, amplification of the seven days of creation. You all know that? I think it's 104. It's a, just, just, it is 104, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's not, a, it, it's not even tenuous. It's, it's explicitly so. I'll just double-check because it's, uh, it's a great psalm to, to read in that. Once, once you get that, it, it's, it's phenomenal to read. Um, but I'll just double-check that it's the right one. Uh, yeah. That's, that's in you. I'll come back to that one in a moment. That's a good question. I'll have to work that one out. Uh, it is Psalm 104. So if you read Psalm 104 tonight, and, and all you've got to do is just have Genesis 1 open before you, right? And then you'll find seven days of creation. So it begins, uh, the Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment, right? Creation of light, day one. And that'll be about five or six verses. And then he set the earth on its foundations. That's kind of day two. So, so the entire Psalm is built on Genesis 1, so... Uh, Peter's question was one that's occurred to me and I don't, 
which was, um, and I don't think I've got at the moment a, a good answer for it, which is that definitely the Levitical system and the sacrificial system was very sin-focused and forgiveness-focused. I guess I want to come back to say that I... And the whole idea of purity is what the whole... Purification is massive. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I, and I, I, um, I, I come back to what I have been saying a lot, which is I'm not saying that forgiveness of sins and is not incredibly important and that there isn't that judicial metaphor and perspective. I think I'm probably, what I'm trying to do is balance that with a creational one. If I were to take the Bible as a whole in terms about its emphasis, um, I guess I would, however, want to say that the, the judicial system um, itself is put into a context by Romans, among other books, as um, a system for a time and a limited purpose, and by Hebrews as not accomplishing its purpose. So it's definitely doing something important, but it's equally got boundaries around it that it's it's. Um, that's that's right. That's right. Well, how we experience it is also important. Well, yes, but it goes further than that. I mean, the arguments in, to me in Romans 7 about the law go a lot further than that. They, they, they don't just say Jesus, uh, we couldn't do it, but Jesus did. They actually go further and say that the legal system, fail, by definition, not through its fault, but through ours, fails to create righteousness. It does, and then, and then, but, 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 I think what Romans 7 is saying is that a law-based system and Hebrews actually doesn't work in creating a righteous life. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and look, there's phenomenal attributes in it, and. Um, uh, demonstration of God's character and so on, but I still feel that it's um, the the law is a psychological instrument in our minds. Just I'm not even saying the mosaic. Any law doesn't seem to create the kind of life that God wants. He does that by His Holy Spirit. But yeah, it, it does, although, again, the, you know, Galatians itself has got this really, really intriguing thing, against such things there is no law, that yeah. there's a great irony that laws can tell you what not to do, they have a, a much harder job telling you what to do, I suppose, so, yeah, so. Oh, like suffering 
the suffering has to go somewhere and it's going over here and that's really awful because the minute ago this sheep was the narrator of the Bible story or where it now it's dying. Um, but I think having gotten older and also casting myself into the mindset of the time, I think when you see a sheep being, a, a sheep being slaughtered, um, what, what you've got to see primarily is lost prophets. So, and I think that kind of informs what you could, what they might have taken away from it. Not, not this kind of blood. Yeah, not not blood as suffering on the ground, but as something I work towards from the ground. It's just not mine to take. Wasted. Wasted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, Andrew uh, has got a uh, great ideas on that. We're going to get him to talk to us about sometime in the next uh, year or so. I mean, because even the phrase "penal substitution" is a mental model of the existential fact of Christ's sacrifice and death, and it arguably could be understood otherwise as well. So, you know, it's quite interesting to take this creation gospel and get into the metaphors around forgiveness and perhaps you know you know amplify them but my my the major point i make though about the cross is that it really has to be totally um seamlessly connected to the resurrection and and the failure in most redemptive theories is they they can explain the cross but not the resurrection uh, um so I think part of our goal has got to be to have a picture of what happened on the cross that includes the resurrection, the, i.e. the recreation of matter. And if you, we put the two together, they can probably talk to each other more powerfully. I, I, I don't have answers to that question fully, except the, to know that it is, it is a fact that you know, most... Somebody did a tally of the, of the 20th, 19th, 20th century books you know, on systematic theology, theology and just counted the number of pages on the cross versus the number of pages on the resurrection and it was like 98% to 2% or something like that. That's not the New Testament's emphasis. Hi, Gordon. In Acts, the sermon always includes the resurrection. Yes. I'm not sure that they always include the cross. No, they don't. And as a matter of fact, uh, that, that's the most, probably the most stunning thing about them as I've been going through them. They do. No, you can't. <laughs> but what the Orthodox, it, it is, there's possibly a kind of a third which the Orthodox Church has also got, which is the incarnation. So they go incarnation, cross, resurrection, and Therefore, the utter necessity of an inevitability of Christ becoming flesh 
and being resurrected in the flesh and taking death with him. So um, the, the, the doctrine of the incarnation, I think, is very central in the Eastern Church and the resurrection theology than it is elsewhere. In, 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 the necessity of the incarnation. I did use the phrase there that in that sin-based gospel, it's almost like Christ's humanity was just a foreign cloak he put on to do the job and then cast it off. Whereas for the church fathers, they had to argue that he's actually coming home when he takes flesh on because we were made in the image of God initially and the incarnation is actually a natural extension. It's not an unnatural, it's not Christ taking on a foreign cloak of a false identity. So incarnation becomes important that he can then share in our systemic problem of death and then and then we are re, uh, resurrected. The resurrection really reframes death, doesn't it, in that way, talking about reframing. And the interesting thing, um, in, even in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 6 and Matthew 9, go and learn the meaning of I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus constantly saying, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. He's constantly reframing yes. and asking questions to get people to reframe. And he didn't sort of say, and here's the way I want you to read. No. Put it. He just kept putting out this kind of questions in different ways. So people would start to get on this journey. Well that well you've you've hit the nail on the head. That actually was the is the code of the of the uh, John conversations. That he disturbs them. And says, "Yeah, but what about this?" But then he doesn't. You're right. He completely doesn't give them the answer. He, he doesn't close the deal like we all think. No, he doesn't close the deal. Well, that, see, he's a great rhetorician. Jesus knows that it's us who's got to close the deal, not him. Like, <laughs> so Nicodemus had to close the deal, and the woman at the well of Samaria had to close the deal. You know, I've I've rattled your cage now. You were balls in your court to think about this. <laughs> That sounds like that sounds good. That sounds good. Um, and so, it, you, you don't buy a plane ticket. You actually buy a meeting in Melbourne or a holiday in yeah. Fiji or something like that. And the argument is simply that when you look at the, the sermons in Acts, it, it's selling you the, the, the destination. The destination. And later, after Acts is written, Paul's writing to the question: That's great, but how do we get there? <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's great. Oh, so I have to repeat that for the uh, for the tape. That the metaphor was that Jesus is Jetstar and <laughs> heavens are meeting in Melbourne and <laughs> first class with Jetstar. <laughs> No, it doesn't. <laughs> cool. Well, any other? Are there any other questions, people, or comments people would like to make before we officially close? Yeah. Last year you had us read um, Jonathan Edwards' uh, The 
ends for which God created all this. The cosmos, yes. Yeah, and um, I, I found it helpful in the way that he talked about ultimate ends and subordinate ends. Mm. <clears throat> and when, when you raise the whole issue of reframing, mm. <clears throat> often we'll hear humanity's ultimate problem is sin, mm. and, and that, that immediately, you know, you, you try to glorify what Jesus does by saying you're solving an ultimate problem, uh, but the, 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 the problem with that is once you tell people it's been dealt with once for all, then you have this problem of why we're here. And Edwards on that front would say, no, that's a subordinate problem. It's the thing that gets in the way of our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem is trying to be, you know, live out, expand into the image of God sort of idea. Yes. Um, yeah, he's saying the same sort of thing, but uh, just saying that, it, yeah, it's just bad wording. We would say sin is our ultimate problem, wanting to do Jesus honour, but actually imitating and reflecting him is very good. Yeah, look, I, I agree. That's that, that, that essay, it's only an essay. How many people have read it, by the way, The Ends Which God Created the Cosmos? About two or three. I highly recommend, like, I mean, I did a talk on it, but it's, uh, um, it's on the website somewhere, but in one of the Trinity talks, it's really worth downloading and reading. I mean, it's a bit of a mind stretcher, but it... It's, uh, it's, it's kind of epic. How the same guy wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is, I'm reading his biography, I just feel sorry for him because he was so brilliant and so wonderful, but I think he was also had, he was trapped in a kind of a Puritan mindset that he couldn't, he couldn't kind of reframe the sin issue like we're doing here. It would have been a great blessing to him, I think. Anyway, um, it's a phenomenal essay, and it's, it's changed the lives of a lot of people, that essay, but it's exactly what Andrew said, that it's the ultimate end as opposed to the means. And, and of course, you know, what we're doing here, in try, all I'm trying to do is put sin in its place, not take it out of the picture. It's, it's just kind of lower down the pecking order than we've allowed it to be, and once you put it back in its place, it's very powerful. I mean, it is an issue of... Uh, you know, personal morality and how we live a good life and, and how we disappoint ourselves. I think all those things can come back in in the broader framework. Uh, of course, I'll be the last person not to say that we haven't kind of screwed up the universe and we're going to get judged for it. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. And uh, Thank Thank we, hope, we hope to get Edwin here next time. He's... He's sounding older, but uh, he's, no, he's no less uh, dimmed, <laughs> and, and he's very enthusiastic to come. So.